and I was sleeping. Action station sounded. Didn't know because you were down below decks and everything was clo closed down. You didn't know what it was going to be or anything. I think before most people closed up, we were being hit with shells. It was the morning of the 13th of December, 1939, an epic day in naval history, the beginning of the Battle of the River Plate, the river plate between Uruguay and the Argentine. The protagonists, the German pocket battleship, the Graf Spee, and the three British cruisers, the Ajax, the Achilles and the Exeter. We were cruising all that night and then fell in the morning, at quarter to six in the morning, uh, a chap by the name of MacDonald, he was a signalman, he reported masts on the horizon. So we we altered course to close as near as possible and we, she still kept coming nearer, nearer to us. Eventually we challenged her and what ship she was, and she opened fire. And the first, the first salvo that she fired landed right in a straight line alongside the ship. Precision gunnery there from the Graf Spee. The voice of Dennis Moynihan from Cove and County Cork, Dennis who was on the Exeter that morning. Meanwhile, of course, the Ajax and the Achilles were also moving into position, as we learn now from William Heden, DSM, who was on the Achilles. Suddenly the, the alarm went for action stations. Control tower, and uh, I got myself sat in my seat in the control tower, and I said to the gunnery officer, who was the first man up, "What have we got today?" And he said, "I think it's the shear." In the end, of course, it turned out to be the Graf Spee. And looking through my binoculars, I could just see the diesel smoke on the horizon. And the next thing that happened, of course, uh, she uh, fired a broadside. And uh, our captain, Captain Parry, gave the order to load and fire when ready. And uh, we engaged the enemy. So the scene was set for what was really a personal battle of wits and seamanship between Commodore Howard and Captain Langsdorff. And from the beginning, it seemed the Germans had all the advantages, as we learn now through our interpreter in Buenos Aires from the master of arms of the Graf Spee. They were able to start the, 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 the shooting before the, the cruisers, because they had the sun behind them, so the cruisers couldn't see them. So the Graf Spee was able to fire first. The first shooting was very intense. Con la tercera salva de los... On the third, the third time they shot, Este, de los eh, eh, cañones grandes del Spee, hemos herido eh, muy gravemente el Exeter. They, they were able to, to hurt the Exeter very much. It wasn't long, long before the A turret, which was the Marines turret, we were, we were altering course to close and they got a direct hit and all killed all the nine pe 
main marines in there, and of course the guns were useless. Next minute, B turret got a, a wallop, and that was out of order. And the one we only had one gun then, which we called, we always called the lazy way, because whenever we were doing out and practice shoots before the war, she'd al always break down. And this time she's the only, <laughs> only one that kept up. But we had our gun, our shrapnel broke the, the tele lens of the of the um, rangefinder, and we had a, a lieutenant commander by the, from Waterford by the name of Jennings, and he stood up on top of the turret with his glasses, and he's shouting down to the to the uh, man in charge of the, the turret, the chief uh, PO in the charge of the turret, telling the range whether it was over, the shot was gone over, or whether it was short, and giving me an idea, give me an idea. Eventually then, white turret broke down, and we, we a shell came in, and made it, it exploded, and made a big hole in the mistake down in, not far from the magazine so Commodore Howard could see our plate and he said told us to withdraw so we withdrew we went back we left then and the Ajax and the Achilles continued harassing the whenever they got a chance you know because they only had 6 inch guns which was and the Raspberry had 11 inch so they said they would only just any chance they got, they fired torpedoes just to divert her. But we went away and we left. We went to Falkland Islands. I was down below in the shell room, and um, as I, I said before, our sh turret got hit, and you were getting no messages through from anything. So this was a turret now. Wasn't a turret, it? yes. It was the second turret to be hit. There was B turret was hit first. And we fired about 15 to 20 rounds per gun before we got hit. And uh, the leading hand in, in charge of the shell room said to me, well, go up and see what's, what's happening. Come back and tell us. And I went up there, and as I, uh, it was all blackness and no lights anywhere. And eventually I got up on in what used to be the... Um, recreation space and there were a lot of wounded hanging around there we did what we could for them and um, I tried to get aft to, to get you know somebody to tell us what what was wanted mm -hmm. and uh, couldn't get aft because uh, all below decks was shattered you know there was great holes in the deck and everything and uh, I saw her turn away, and that's that's the first sighting I, I saw of her. You know, she fired at us, and then she turned away, and that was my first sighting of her. I suppose the fact that she turned away is the reason you're sitting talking to me here, perhaps. Yes, I was very pleased when she did turn away. One of the great mysteries of the Battle of the River Plate, I suppose, how Captain Langsdorff and the Graf Spade turned away from the crippled Exeter and allowed her go on her way. I suggested to the historian John de Courcy Island that the German captain seemed to suffer from an excess of good nature, that he was, in fact, a very human man. Yes, he was. Isn't that a terrible thing to have to say? Uh, seamen, contrary to a lot of public opinion, I think, 
do tend to be very human people because they have to deal with um, the elements to begin with. It it forces them uh, to be very concerned with those people in whose company they are facing something much more powerful than themselves. And he had all the qualities of a very good seaman. He was an excellent navigator. He understood currents and the like of that. He he showed, of course, uh, great common sense in not running up the river plate into Argentina. That would have been a fatal thing to do. A lot of people have said he should have done that. But uh, when it came to the battle... It's very hard to decide whether he perhaps was not completely confident in his crew, uh, whether he overestimated the damage that had been done to his ship, but it does seem that he ought to have chased the Exeter when the light cruisers broke off and finished her off, and it certainly seems that he shouldn't have made for Montevideo. Uh, He had, of course, problems about fuel, but this uh, Altmark was in the distant neighbourhood, and he could have rendezvoused with her, and I think it would have been extremely difficult for Howard to to keep a tag on him if he had made out to sea instead of in towards the coast. In many ways, Dr. de Corsi Island, he could literally, quite brutally, have taken the three cruisers, couldn't he? Well, he, he certainly could have destroyed the Exeter, I think, after the light cruisers broke off he must have known how badly damaged she was obviously he knew that I don't think he knew how badly damaged the Ajax was and he had good reason to be afraid of torpedoes of course but he had the speed to catch up the Exeter and he had after all caused the other two to break off their their struggle so uh, that seems to have been a serious miscalculation on his part Indeed, this very same humanity manifests it in all of the men, in all of the ships, British or German. They shared one very simple common denominator, fear. For the first five minutes, he was afraid. He thought about his mother, about his home. But he wasn't married at that time. But then, when all the shooting began and uh, they were into the battle, he forgot about all that and and was only interested in his own things, what he had to do and all that. He was busy. He was busy. And it, and then he, talking to other people, he, he realized that it had been the same for all the rest. Did he like the Graf Spee as a ship? Le gustaba el Graf Spee como barco. Me gustaba mucho. He liked it very much. era un buque muy poderoso. Era primeramente chico. It was a small ship. A small, small ship. Powerful. E poderoso. But very powerful. A pocket battleship. A pocket battleship. That's the way. Tenía mucha arma pesada, mucha arma potente. Y un, uh, era un buque que podía defenderse en el mar. Era muy este, ágil. No? It, was, it, was a, it was a small ship, but with very big cannons, unable to defend itself in the, in the, she, in the sea. Mm. Very... With, with Agile and with the speed. I don't think we were particularly heroes. We happened to be there at that time. It's other people make you heroes. It's, uh, um, in fact, I can, can't remember anything that I saw that was particularly heroic. You know, uh, people doing their job, but um, 
it's very difficult, you know, you, you, you can't put your hand out and stop a shell, can you? The laconic and modest Welshman David Evans. And then there was William Heedon, DSM. How did he feel? I felt very much afraid, and I think that applies to anyone who, who goes into action. Uh, any man who says he's not scared, he, well, uh, he's not telling the truth. I, uh, my, my heart was in my mouth. But, of course, when you actually get down to the job, uh, that fear subsides, and you concentrate on the job. And, of course, on a ship... You can't get out and run away. You've, you've, you've just got to sit there, you see, and, and, and hope for the best. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I was very annoyed and very angry, too, when, uh, when, when my pal next to me got killed. And I think that uh, my fear went then, and I just concentrated on the job, trying to do my very best to, to, to train the control tower and keep the enemy in sight. You were Although, um, now, th this control tower was trained by power. In other words, it, it could swing right or left by power, you see. But when we got hit by shrapnel, the, the bow race, the bow race of the, of, of the control tower was uh, uh, put out of action, and I couldn't train uh, by power anymore, and I had to train by hand. Well, this control tower weighed several tons and it was quite a job, you know, training by hand, getting getting it around and keeping on the enemy. You were awarded the Distinguished Service Medal later. Uh, did this surprise you when it happened? Did you feel you were heroes? Oh, no, not at all, because I thought we were all heroes. You know, every every, every man did his, did his bit and uh, we, we should have all got medals, I think, all of us. <laughs> It, you know, it was quite a surprise to me because I didn't think that I'd really earned it. I'd just done my job, the job I've been trained for over the years, since 1923. An extraordinary fact continued to emerge whether I was in London, in Cove or Buenos Aires. The average age of the seamen was between 16 and 23. The merest boys, what could they do? As the German lady says now, what did they do? They just fought. They just followed instructions and did what they had been told to do, and that was all they thought because they were too young and uh, they were unable to think by themselves. Yeah, Mr. Taylor, he was a peer lieutenant. Tell us about that. Well, I was just I just happened to walking my inconometer, and I just had a noise and a, a thud, and I looked around and I saw him, on the, and I saw him on the floor behind me, and the top of his head had been practically blown off. So I went out and I up, up, up the ladder and I reported to the captain and he came down and had a look at him and we just got a, a canvas that was on, the, on the, the ground and we pulled him in out of the way and just covered him over and left him there until it was all over. And what state was the captain in? Well, the captain, all his face was all cut and he had a, a big handkerchief, a big towel around his neck to soak up the blood but he was quite determined, like, quite, you know, quite prepared to carry on the fight. You got cigarettes for him, did you? I did. We ran short of cigarettes. He said, no, has anybody got a cigarette? So I said, I have some down below. So I said, run down and get them. So I ran down. I brought back five, five packets of 20, and I gave them around, and I got them back afterwards from him. He sent me a box of 50. 
the noise must have been terrific. Well, it was, but uh, you you didn't take much notice of it. As I say, you were taken up with your doing your own job, and you didn't. You, well, you hadn't time actually to to uh, take notice of it, except when the gun, when the when the turret would fire. You know, that would be the only. Uh, when you when the shell would hit the ship, you'd feel a shudder. You know. You were fairly close to the Graf Spee at this stage. Well, we, the range the range at that time would be round about. Uh, 12,000 yards, 10 to, 10 to 12,000 yards, which was fairly close. And she was clearly visible then? Oh, quite quite visible. It's, it's quite as clear now as I can see you. Was there much talk went on among yourselves? No, because uh, we were too busy doing our own job, you see. I mean, there were fires in different parts of the ship, and the hoses were... were the, the men were manning the hoses and trying to put out the fires, and there was different. Uh, the um, communication would last for the bridge, and uh, we had to have communication down to the down to the um, steering flat. By all done by by manpower, you know, by word of mouth, and that's how the, the ship was steered. That that way. How old were you at that time? I was um, eighteen, eighteen and a half. Then, when you came out and you saw her turn away. There must have been a dreadful scene on deck, was there? Oh, yes. It was, you know, people with arms off and uh, uh, how they got out of the, these turrets, I don't know. But there was one young lad, a young lad called Richards. He was laying down uh, outside the turret. How he got out, because he was must have been dead. There was a great big hole in his back. But how they got out of the turret, whether they were blown out or what, I don't know. How did you feel at the time? Not very happy. Mm. Was it your first time seeing death in action? Well, I wouldn't say first time seeing death, but first time in action where there was quite a bit of death. They got an agreement of ceasing fire for 15 minutes, both uh, German and British ship, to assist the casualties. That is why he describes it as the gentleman's battle. Yes, that's why he Signals con banderas y, y, y cuando bajaron, code, bajaron eh, eh, la batalla sigue. Pero la, ah, la yeah. batalla. They hoisted the white flag, sí. and when that was uh, run down, run, uh, lowered, the battle continued. Claro. An extraordinary story there from Mr. Dunsell of the Graf Spey, told to us in Buenos Aires. And so the Exeter sailed away for herself to the Falklands Islands and Captain Langsdorff appeared to have made his biggest mistake, not going in for the kill. John de Courcy Island, I think, understands why he might have done this, especially as a man. As a man, remarkably high. <laughs> he comes out very high and I think it's been mentioned, of course, on a number of occasions, but the the big moment was at the funeral of his survivor, of his um, his casualties in Montevideo, 
when all the crew gave the Nazi salute and he gave the old German naval imperial salute. And uh, I knew so very well Captain Weisbach of the U-19 who brought casement here in 1916. And Captain Weisbach was of the same uh, generation as Langsdorff and he had <laughs> indeed known him not, not very well, but he had known him. And uh, they shared, I think, because I know Weisbach had, a contempt for the Nazi running of affairs. And uh, Weisbach never rose, although he was a submarine ace of the First World War, he never rose to any position in the Nazi Navy. Langsdorff, I am convinced, shared this uh, devotion for the old Imperial Navy, very conservative, but at least on the whole very honourable. And he felt he was being involved in something he didn't believe in. But as a, a naval tactician, no, uh, he doesn't stand anywhere near Harwood. As a strategist, he was very good. His handling of the campaign before the actual battle up to within two or three days of the actual battle really was remarkable. The way he went into the Indian Ocean, came back again up into the Gulf of Guinea, he made himself uh, ubiquitous. He did precisely what a ship of that sort was designed to do. He caused a large number of British and French warships to be concentrated where it was a great nuisance to have them concentrated. It must have cost thousands and thousands of pounds. And, of course, he captured this um, <coughs> Uh, 50,000, more than 50,000 tons of uh, Allied shipping, which they very badly needed. All that was remarkably well handled, but when it came to the battle, I think he went wrong. There was, of course, I think you said a while ago, a little lighter side. The parson offered you some refreshments. Uh, I think he did this to quite a few people. This was after the action when we were clearing up and people were running around. He just opened his port, all of his cabin, and said, Would you like a drink? I went round and gave me a glass of water. Not quite what you had in mind. <laughs> no. Was there much panic in the ship? Uh, no, no panic. I wouldn't say there was no panic. Mm. You know, uh, everybody was getting... First of all, to get to action, everybody was going as fast as they could. They weren't hanging around. I, I, I believe, too, the Commodore had left your ship some time before. Yes, he'd gone, he took the flag over to the Ajax. Because uh, we we were the oldest ship there, and most probably the biggest ship. Well, we were the biggest ship. I suppose he thought that we could take more than mm. the Ajax. And he, you, you also, of course, took much more punishment than any of the other ships there. Yes. Well, uh, the Ajax and the Achilles, they were the other side of her, and then they decided to... Follower, keep her in sight, because that was the thing. It wasn't... Uh, if they'd got in closer, I should imagine that they'd have been blown out of the water, even with what the Graf Spee had left. You said to me earlier that the, the Commodore was a Catholic. Did you have any chance to go to confession before that engagement? No. Well, of course, we were, as I say, we were on patrol at sea. But we had a parson, and his name was uh, Groves, Mr. Groves. But, and he always used to say to me when we had confession, even though he was a Protestant, he often said to me, when we had confession last, don't forget to go to confession. 
No, the Commodore also saw to your duties. He was a very, very, he was a wonderful Catholic. And he never left anybody who was a Catholic stay on board the ship on Sunday if we were in port. He'd see that every Catholic went to Mass. And after Mass, always, we were always given our breakfast in the church where we went to Mass. We were always, our breakfast was always provided for us after we went to communion. Now, on that morning, the 13th of December, 1939, when the River Plate battle took place, your family in Cove must have heard it in the news or read it in the papers. They probably did. I did. They did. They did. They told me after they heard it on the, on the, uh, on the radio. But of course, they they got, they got notification from the Admiralty that I was all right. There, there was there, there, there was no, you know, there wasn't. You were safe. That I was safe. Yeah. Did your mother worry about you? Oh, naturally she did. Yes, she was very worried. She's because she had, although she had. She had a hard life. She was. She had to work very hard. My father died when he was thirty-seven, and she had to go out and work for us to keep us going. So I went away, as I say, to try and make the life a bit easier at home. Were you proud of the Exeter? Very proud. Very proud. And I'm very. I was very sorry when I heard that she was. We were. I, f- I forget where we were now. When I got an. Uh, when I got the news that she was sunk in the Battle of the Java Sea, I'm sure some of the old some of the old men were my old comrades were on her. That had been on her first time, you know. Then let's go back to the comrades, the Battle of the Grafsch Bay. How many did you lose that day? Fifty six, fifty six killed, and, and there were about I suppose forty, thirty to forty injured, seriously injured. Well, we we spent all that day clearing up and. Uh, and I think it was about a day later. It could have been two days because it's a bit jumbled now in my mind. But we buried them the next day, I think. And the, uh, the people who were dead at that time, but there were people who died afterwards from their wounds. They were buried at sea? Yes, buried at sea. What uh, happened, actually? How, how did they have the burials? What happens? Well, you, you know, we're, you, you're... Um, I used to work with the blacksmith, so it was left to me to find metal and stuff to weight the bodies down. So practically everything that you got, you know, a bit of metal you got, you you, you put it with the body and you, um, you just wrapped them round in blankets, anything you could, and wrapped them round and put these weights with them as much as you could. And... Um, when they read the burial service, which was, you know, when you, you've seen about 50 young blokes being tipped over the side that you, you'll not see again, you're not very <coughs> happy. When the burial was over, the, the, the morale must have been low, was oh, it? Oh, it was terribly low. You know, because, uh, there were so many youngsters be, between, shall we say, 16... And 23, which is a good, you know, it's bloody young to me now, but even in those days, you know, they were youngsters and they uh, they held in their hands sort of happiness, being young and able to run, jump, push a barrel, wheel a truck or anything like that. You know, they, 
it seems to me such a waste of young life. Then too, I know that from my what I know about navy and about armies, men carry with them souvenirs like pictures of home and that. Did you have to collect things belonging to your dead? Oh yes. We used to. I had to collect most of the blacksmith stuff because he kept most most of his stuff in the um, blacksmith shop. And um, they, they they sell all the kit. And um, being that we had so much, uh, so many kill, they allowed you to bid on with credit. Because the, the usual thing was if somebody died in the navy, only one, shall we say, that you bid ten pound for a pair of socks, so that money went to their dependents. But um, there were so many in the exit that. You, they be, uh, bid on credit, you know, and some people went into debt for a few months' pay. memories of the Battle of the River Plate. For some, of course, there was little time for the melancholy memory. There was time, I suppose, for the moment of self-destruction, the moment of sadness, the moment of catharsis. People like Captain Langsdorff. Well, when, uh, after the destruction of his ship, which was ordered from Berlin, he had to make his way to Buenos Aires Obviously, for internment, for the for the length of the war, I think he knew perfectly well that even though Argentina was sympathetic to his government, he could not be let go. He felt very distressed. He was attacked uh, publicly as a coward, which was the last thing the man was. He felt, I think distress at the way that his ship, to which he was immensely attached, apparently, had had to be destroyed. He might have preferred to have made a fight for it. That is very difficult to say, because he was humane. I think he thought that the loss of life unnecessarily is, is not the way to fight a war. And uh, But, of course, he did think that there were a great many more British ships outside the River Plate than there really were. I feel that um, he thought he'd come to the end of the road. He didn't like his government, that is evident. Mm. That salute is, is, I think, absolute proof of that. He probably didn't care very much for some of his officers that were with him. He didn't care for the attitude in Buenos Aires. He had lost his battle. He'd lost his ship, which he loved. And uh, in a fit of despair, he shot himself, he unrolled the old German imperial flag 
to which he felt a genuine devotion, and uh, he shot himself. And um, it was a very sad thing to have done, I think, that... Um, I suppose everybody has a right to do what they like, but, but suicide is, a, is an act of despair, quite evidently, and he, he had really not done anything dishonourable, whatever. So therefore he should not have despaired, but that's just my personal feeling. The Ambassador Buenos Aires, December 19, 1939. Your Excellency, after a long inward struggle, I reached the grave decision to scuttle the pocket battleship Graf Spee. Rather than expose my ship to the danger after her fight of falling partly or completely into enemy hands, I have decided not to fight but to destroy the equipment and sink the ship. It was clear to me that this decision might be misinterpreted, whether intentionally or unintentionally, by persons ignorant of my motives as being attributable partly or entirely to personal consideration. Therefore I decided from the beginning to bear the consequences involved in this decision, for a captain with a sense of honour cannot separate his own fate from that of his ship. I postponed my intention as long as I was still responsible for the welfare of the crew under my command. After today's decision of the Argentine government, I can do no more for my ship's company. Neither will I be able to take an active part in the present conflict of my country. Now I can only prove by my death that the fighting services of the Third Reich are ready to die for the honour of their flag. I alone bear the responsibility for scuttling the pocket battleship Admiral Graf Spee. I am happy to pay with my life to prevent any possible reflection on the honour of the flag. I shall meet my fate with firm faith in the cause and the future of the nation and my Führer. I am writing this letter to Your Excellency in the quiet of the evening after calm reflection in order that you may be able to inform my superior officers and to counter any public rumours if this should become necessary. Signed, Langsdorff, Captain, Commanding Officer of the Sunk Pocket Battleship, Admiral Graf Spee.
I visited it about 1937 when I was on the American and West Indies station, and he said, all right, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll go and have a drink in your farmyard bar. So we toddled along, entered the farmyard bar, and lo and behold, there were about six uh, German sailors from the Graf Space sitting at a table drinking, you see. And uh, my friend, the chief gunner's mate, said, oh, well, this is a bit dicey, Dick. I, I don't think we better go in here. I said, come on, it's all right. The, the battle's over. We're sailors, they're sailors, and uh, let's, uh, let's, let's have our drink. So we sat down at the table and called for drinks. And shortly afterward, the waiter came along with a tray of whiskey. And he said, this is from the German sailors, and they want you to uh, to drink their health. And I said, well, that's fine. Uh, there you are. It's uh, not as bad as I thought. And uh, we drank their health. Uh, we didn't speak to them. They just waved to us, and we waved back. And uh, before we left, uh, I ordered drinks for the German sailors. And... Uh, <laughs> We left the bar quite happy. Of course, you see, between uh, between sailors is a kind of camaraderie. Um, you're 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 all you're all sailing the seas. You're all liable to the same uh, terrors of the sea. And I don't know you. Um, you don't bear these terrible grudges. You see, it's uh, you know it's as I say, it's a camaraderie of the sea. They met. And he thinks that the battle was something political. Mm-hmm. So when they met on docks, they were just chatting, and they, they even went to the bars near the docks, no, tengo just to, to drinking beer and laughing. So fuhr von Hamburg, Mosun, Olen, Kasten, mit Nomen, hey, Thema, Gelan, do wer bidag, kennt die Tumbrassen, dat let man an, Bit omen stone, rolling home, rolling home, rolling home, rolling home across the sea, rolling home to dear old Hamburg, rolling home, sweetheart, to see. Were you very proud of the Achilles as a ship? Oh, very proud indeed, because. Um she, she fought well. She, she fought very well. And um, when the uh, when the Ajax departed for for England and we departed for New Zealand, we steamed past each other. And uh, our little crowd sang the uh, the Maori song. You know, no, now is the hour.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.